0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're
0: going to have a conversation.
2: From Chicago, this is Film
3: Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So you were saying, Adam, we don't have more women listeners because they're fearful?
0: They see us on stage with tight trousers. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening, okay. the size. Yeah. And, and they, they run screaming.
2: Well, that's it then. No more live shows. Or maybe just new trousers. This week, (laughs) Josh St. Larson and I share our top five mockumentary moments, along with a review of the new vampire-themed mock doc, What We Do in the Shadows. We'll probably get to a little Oscars talk as well. I sure hope one of us watched the Oscars this year. All that, this show is recorded in Dobly, right? (laughs) Ahead on Film FilmSpotting.
3: This episode of Film Spotting is sponsored by Mubi, where right now they have a double bill of great early silence by German suspense master Fritz Lang, The Wandering Shadow, and Four Around a Woman. Also playing at movie is Headshot. This is a Thai noir thriller that literally turns the world upside down after its detective hero gets shot in the head. And they have Four Lions,
2: an audacious, sardonic, and controversial black comedy that dares to poke fun at terrorism. Can definitely recommend Four Lions. The others I will need to seek out over at Movie.com, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films every day. Their curators introduce a new title. You have thirty days to watch it. It's all just four ninety-nine a month. And listeners of film spotting can try movie for free for one month. Just go to movie.com/slash filmspotting to redeem. Again, that's Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting, a show that does have a tradition of losing co-hosts in mysterious circumstances. You're yeah, aware of that, what right, was, Josh? What was it that happened to Sam? He exploded? <laughs> hey, spontaneous combustion. It happens. It <laughs> happens every year. You knew what you were getting into as well when you signed up for this job. This week's top five, not the top five Film Spotting co-hosts, but mockumentary moments. If we were smart, we should have really made this one the top 11. Good point. Good point. And yes, there are mockumentary moments that don't involve Christopher Guest and Spinal Tap. We'll prove it to you. That top five, plus some reaction to last weekend's Oscars
3: later in the show. But first, what if Nosferatu, Dracula, Lestat, and one of the Lost Boys shared a flat together?
1: It's been like this the whole time. Deacon on dishes, and it still hasn't moved in five years.
2: You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. No, that's not the point, though. You're yeah, missing no, I know, point. not the know. flat meeting about how cool you are. When you get three vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. <laughs>
0: Viago was an 18th century dandy. Look, a ghost cop.
1: Vladislav is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture chamber. The deacons like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent,
2: but I don't
3: setting up our Selma review a few weeks ago, Adam, you referenced listener Max O'Connell's rules for making a good biopic. I think he shared those on Letterboxd. I'm going to steal that concept for starting our conversation about what we do in the shadows and see if we can also settle on a few essentials for successful mockumentaries. Coming from some of the minds behind HBO's brilliant and sadly-gone musical comedy series, Flight of the Concords, What We Do in the Shadows purports to be one of those confessional, fly-on-the-wall reality television series about a bickering family. Only here the subjects are four New Zealand roommates who happen to be vampires. So aside from the vampires, we're in fairly familiar territory here. From Albert Brooks' Real Life to Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap... To the comedies of Spinal Tap star Christopher Guest. I'm sure we'll be getting into a lot of those in our top five lists of mockumentary moments. Thinking about all of these together, I found a few common elements that seem to make for a good mockumentary. Keep a straight face is a good rule of thumb. Never let the audience in on the joke, never wink, just don't pull aside that curtain at all. Gather an ensemble. And give them space to each live into their own little story. There may be one figure or a couple who rise to the fore. Usually I find it's the ones who make me laugh the most. They may not get the most screen time, but I think of it then as their movie. Yet everyone still has enough time to do something. Leave room for improvisation. That's where real life is best mimicked. If these sorts of movies are ever going to capture some sort of sense of real life even though we know it's fake it's when things get improvisational and one more here embrace the awkward embrace the uncomfortable because i think mockumentaries can get at the truth in a very unique way and usually that only happens when things start to get a little squirmy for the actors on the screen for the characters on the screen definitely and for us in the audience so would you agree with these criteria for mockumentaries and if so Would you say what we do in The Shadows meets most of them?
2: Yeah, I think it probably meets all of them, actually. And I do think that's a good quartet of rules for these films. Of course, it helps. You mentioned some of these like Real Life and This is Spinal Tap. If you have brilliant people like Albert Brooks and Christopher Guest and Harry Shear involved – that's usually good, too. Casting. I don't know. Casting. Yeah. is essential, you're saying. know, that's you're part saying. of the ensemble. And I don't know many of these performers. I didn't really watch Flight of the Concords that much. I've seen bits and pieces here and there. I know Jermaine Clement is very talented, and that comes through here. Reese Darby, I know a little bit from that show. He's a supporting player here as the, the werewolf pack. The werewolves, not the swearwolves, in <laughs> <laughs> one of the good bits from the movie. So I'm on board with your rules. And yes, I'm on board with how this movie obeys those rules. And the best thing I Can say about it. We don't often review comedies here on the show. It's hard to dive in so much. We were joking about this before we started taping that what makes comedies tough to review for us anyway is that you basically just want to get into a back and forth about all your favorite bits, Uh and that That doesn't maybe what we do. Yeah, well, that doesn't make for the best (laughs) listening experience. Well, deconstructing
3: comedy is uh, gets old pretty quickly too. I mean, that's a good point. It can be interesting to a certain point to explain Mm -hmm. why one movie on a subject is funny and another isn't. But
2: after a while, it's like, okay, just laugh. Yeah, absolutely. And the best thing I can say about this film is that not only did it make me laugh, but I think it's subtly funny and that jokes do sneak up on you. It's not often the broadest humor you might expect watching a vampire mockumentary. And I know that if I had the time to watch it a second or a third time... I will probably see 10 jokes at least for sure that I either didn't see them visually or I just didn't hear them because I was probably laughing at something else or I wasn't smart enough to get the joke the first time around. This movie, speaking of Spinal Tap, has the funniest line ever. I'm going to say in the history of cinema involving the word sandwich since you Marty like Debergi, huh? since Marty DeBerge asked the Spinal Tap guys for their response to the two word review of their album Shark Sandwich. <laughs> this movie may even top.
3: Yeah, I think I like this Shark one a Sandwich. Little bit better. That's how good
2: this line is. This movie is worth seeing just for that bit delivered by Jemaine Clement.
3: Well, and because he has, I mean, he just. It's one of the most impenetrable deadpans yeah, we have it. in comedy right now, and he de- he delivers it that way, and the camera waits. It just rests on him and gives those extra pauses to let it sink in. You're waiting for him to crack or, or to pursue the joke further, and he just lets it sit there yeah. and do its work. Uh, my favorite, though, might have been uh, – let's derail for a moment here – who let Peter out? <laughs> I – I like... Peter was my favorite. I yeah, think. he's Nosferatu. He's Nosferatu. And that's probably why. It's a sentimental choice for me. He scared but me. We, that's part of it, Just though. Just seeing that he's, face scares me. He is He is creepy. And yeah. there's a scene where a victim is running through the house trying to escape that also works as a horror scene. I mean, it's... It's funny. When you see Jermaine He doesn't Jermaine... seem scared enough. The guy running, <laughs> no, but No, he kind of is slow. Yeah. But and also when you see Jermaine Clement's face appear on a cat all of a sudden out of nowhere that I love those kind of takes a little bit out of the scary factor. But but there are elements in that scene that do make you, you know, a little bit on edge. They they have an affection and I think Shaun of the Dead worked this way too. They have just enough affection for the tropes they're playing with in terms of horror films that you, you can sense that and it bubbles up too. But the, the thing that I liked about it as a horror fan is how they were very careful. Each of these four characters, as I mentioned earlier in the tease to, to, to pull from a specific vampire type, so we yeah. do have Nosferatu, and Clement is sort of the Lothario Dracula. But my favorite—well, he's Vlad too. So he's he makes glad, you think. He gets the torture of, element. Yeah, he makes you think of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, and, yeah, yeah, very much, very much. Uh, the the Gary Oldman style. But my favorite might be Taika Waititi in terms yeah. of uh, who's the heart of this film. If we he can say the that, movie, yeah. I really think he does. And I, I, you know, ha- not familiar with him. I I saw he also made Eagle vs. Shark, mm-hmm. which was a little heavy on the quirk. I didn't see that. I, I, but but I thought it worked overall. Also starred Clement. And here, as this aristocratic Lestat-style vampire who's so polite, trying to keep this house in order, yet a bloodthirsty killer at the same time. What What he gets so well, and I liked about the film overall, is how they mimic the reality television format perfectly and he captures if you watch reality television series early on when the people the star element hasn't quite gotten gone to their head and they're not performing yet for the camera they're still kind of dazed that a camera is following them yeah he kind of just has that sheepish embarrassed yeah. grin like oh you guys you guys are watching me mm-hmm. and and he plays that throughout he also has one of the more interesting storylines in that he moved to new zealand to follow this girl what maybe a hundred years ago or so no maybe not that old she's still alive and he genuinely pines for her right and you know no one's going to shed any tears, but it does echo a little bit last year's Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left Alive, where there's this sense of longing yeah, and melancholy. exhaustion yeah. and melancholy. But but how do these guys meet that? Well, the Deacon character, the one who's the lost boy, he he does a belly dance for them <laughs> to pass the time. Yeah. And I love Ytt's and Clement's observation of that. They're just like utterly bored. Totally. Like this
1: has been going totally. on for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> The neighbors can see you flying around the house. Do you want to draw attention to this house, hmm? You've got a whole documentary crew following you around. I'm doing an erotic dance for my friends. and You ruined it. I was in the zone. My friends are loving it. I, love it. I saw the end of it. It looked great. I don't, I don't know if I'm, being, if I'm accepted yet, but I don't know. I think it's getting there. I know they're old and stuff, but they're quite naive when it comes to the real world. So, I don't know. It'd be cool to just hang out with them. They can teach me some stuff. I can probably teach them a few things
2: you're listening to film spotting we're discussing the new vampire mockumentary what we do in the shadows and if you're thinking i've never even heard of this film well guess what up until about a week ago we really hadn't heard of this film either but it has been garnering a little bit of positive buzz and it sounds like here we're both pretty happy that we saw it you know the other reason why you think taika waititi steals this movie josh that's because that's who we are in this scenario. If we were both of us living if we in a were house, if we were oh. two hundred to eight hundred year old vampires living with two other vampires, we would be the one You're so walking right. around cleaning up after You're everyone so else. Right. We'd be holding the the house meetings, trying to make sure everybody's following the Put rules. Put the newspaper down before Putting you chop on down, the person's neck. One of my favorite bits in the movie. I mean, that's where this film really does succeed. Is that it takes all these things, and I've thought about this before. I've always, thought, I'm sure, someone also has thought of this or done a parody of it. But you ever wonder about James Bond in the moments where he isn't James Bond, where James Bond just has to be a normal guy right. who has to use the bathroom or do those kind of things that all of us do, but you would never see in a film. Mm-hmm. Well, here we get these vampires who they take care of all those things that you never seen in a vampire movie. Like, okay, so what do you do when you live in a house and, you know, you're going in for the kill and, you know, you can't just have blood shoot everywhere. So he's trying to woo her but at the same time subtly put yes. down the newspapers yes. so that so that he doesn't make too big and again, of a mess. he's so polite. He's like really trying to listen to what she's saying and That's the... it. Right. I mean, he's <laughs> acting like he's genuinely interested as opposed to just using her for the piece of meat that she is. But you mentioned reality TV and we've talked about other vampire movies. Those elements are there, but I think what was refreshing about this movie for me is that mockumentaries typically are a showcase for some satire or parody. That's what they're mocking. I mean, they're making fun of something, and they're usually making fun of something that comes from real life. Well, vampires don't come from real life. We only know vampires from vampire movies and vampire literature, but I don't think that the humor here is really derived at all from our familiarity with those movies. Yes, absolutely, the four main characters kind of fit a prototype, but they don't go out of their way to draw a lot of attention to that. I mean, there is one Lost Boys reference that's really funny, if you know the movie The Lost Boys, as I do. And there's even, I would say, do you think I'm wrong that there's a direct riff on a non vampire movie, Inception, when two vampires oh, get into a fight? Absolutely. Two vampires get into a fight in a hallway and they end up fighting on the ceiling. And it's like a lo fi version of It's a lo fi version, but it's pretty good. It's not and that. And that's another thing about with this you.
3: movie the special effects here. Well, maybe Clement's face on the cat is a little, is a little dodgy, but when there's that bat. Battle when two yeah. of them turn into bats. I mean, that could hold up in any Hollywood sci-fi was or fantasy film. I was
2: surprised and the production value doesn't just extend to those special effects, but also, as you were mentioning, the old literature and the old paintings where they sort of photoshopped oh, themselves the into shots, it. the yeah. insert shots. Those <laughs> are obviously really artistically rendered. They, are. And they could have just said, you know, we're gonna just do a Pure spoof of reality TV, and we don't need any of that kind of stuff to give it some weight. And sometimes, sometimes the shoddiness in a mockumentary is used as part of the yes.
3: joke. Yeah. And and I think that can get old, yeah, even I if it's too. funny at first. And here, down to the production design, everything is 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 fairly elegant. And I I think that is speaks to another. Aspect of this movie, it doesn't just rest on its concept. At the beginning of these four guys living together, it adds a few more characters, including a new vampire who right. kind of threatens Deacon because they wear the same jacket. Exactly, and and he gets this added subplot, or or Stu, Stu played by the IT guy. <laughs> Stuart Rutherford, who's just this tag-along human, and they think is pretty cool. I don't know why. The guy doesn't say anything. I know. He's just always there. Maybe it's well, because he's he not him, a threat. He helps them with their computers. And he does help them. Tr- I
2: forgot about that. He helps them do their dark bidding <laughs> <Yes>. on
3: eBay. <laughs> and so they're like, well, Stu's pretty useful. So they let him hang around. And that could be just a single gag, but They develop it where, you know, they go to this masquerade ball where there are zombies and and Stu becomes threatened. Everything kind of builds on each other. So it's not just repeated gags over and over. Exactly, I I thought you might think when you hear this, sounds like a great Saturday Night Live sketch. And I don't know if many seasons of SNL could make this work for three minutes, they would generally go back to the same
2: joke. No, that's a good point. Ten times. And this, they keep finding new ways to make it funny. That's true, though. If you read plot descriptions and summaries of this movie, they make it sound a lot more plot heavy than it is, as if these characters really are going through some kind of narrative arc. I'm a journey. Yeah. I don't (laughs) think that's really here. It is more like a collection of scenes, but it fits together so nicely. And they do keep finding new riffs on the humor that it does pay off. And I think, what's that vampire the new one? Is it Nick? I think his name is. That other touch, one of the funny moments for me, is when he first becomes a vampire and he flies into the house. (laughs) Another one of those moments where, like, think about it. If you were a vampire, they're like, no, really, you can just open the door. Just use the door. It's like, no, but I'm a vampire now. Of course I'm going to fly, even if I have to enter. Yeah, (laughs) poorly, and I'm going to enter the room awkwardly. It's still worth it, because that's what vampires do. I do really like those touches. And you mentioned Only Lovers Left Alive. Hard not to think about this movie in connection to that in some ways. And one of the things we discussed was how that was this take- On vampire movies that, as we said, isn't really about riffing on those vampire movies at all, but it's about reapplying the myth of vampires in some way. And for me, I wonder, tell me, Josh, if I'm overthinking this too much, but the one thing I'll say about this movie is it does seem to be taking that myth and the reapplication here, if anything, is really about male bonding. It's about groups of male friends and how they interact with each other. And whether you're 17 or 70 or 170 or 700, those dynamics, this movie says, don't really seem to change, right? You're always going to argue about who's doing the dishes or not doing the dishes. You're going to have challenges to the group dynamic when someone yeah. else is yeah. sort of taking on your persona or someone new enters the group. The encounters with the werewolves, <laughs> not swear wolves, <laughs> as we said. They're this rival gang of creatures, but they're struggling with their own group dynamics and how to respond to the alpha male. And maybe if there is any kind of challenge to shows like True Blood and maybe Twilight, which I haven't seen, so I can't really comment, is how when the testosterone gets flowing here, they basically just hiss at each other and rebuke each other strongly (laughs) verbally, but nobody actually wants to fight. I love that element to it. So again, I don't know that there's a whole lot of real commentary on psychology here or, or groups. But there's no doubt that that's what this movie is yeah, about, is these male friends. There's sort of
3: a bromance element to it. And th- those hissing fits.
2: <laughs> the wire work is pretty good, too, Again. going back to the effects. Every time I got angry at you during a review, I wish I could just elevate slightly. That would really make things Wouldn't interesting. It? All right. Well, what we do in the shadows is out now. It opened exclusively at the Music Box here in Chicago this weekend, and it's out currently in limited release if you've seen it. And agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Please leave it in the vampire voice of your choosing. And I think instead of earmuffs from now on, when things get salty, we, we have to
3: change it to swearwolves, no swearwolves, wolves. <laughs> the results of the film spotting poll are next, where we asked what Oscar outcomes you most wanted to see. We'll also share some thoughts about the real-world results of the ceremony, then jump into our top five mockumentary moments. I hope I get all of mine in before I turn into a globule. Stay with us.
0: Stonehenge, where the demons dwell, where the fancies live at.
2: Where
0: the virgins lie and the prayers of the devil hits fill the midnight sky. I hey, love my love, won't you take my love? We'll go back in time to that mystic man.
1: Uh, this is crazy in a way, uh, talking about that little prick called ego. Uh, Ego loves competition, right? Because for someone to win, someone has to lose. But the paradox is that, uh, you know, true art, true individual expression as all the work of these incredible fellow filmmakers can't be compared, can be labeled, can can't be defeated because they exist and our work only will be judged, as always, by time.
2: Yes, congratulations, Mister Inyari. Two, your Birdman can live the rest of its cinematic life as the answer to the trivia question: What film beat Boyhood for the 2015 Best Picture Oscar? <laughs> You're a sore loser, aren't you? Seriously, though, that was actually a really nice speech. Though it's rich listening to him talk about ego. See, oh, there yeah. you go. It's not going to convince anybody who had problems with Birdman I had that to get speech, a jab but I, I did think it was nice. Welcome back to Film Spotting. We'll get into some reaction to last weekend's Oscars in just a bit, but first, a couple of notes. Our Satyajit Ray Marathon is ongoing. Earlier in the week, we posted via our podcast feed or at filmspotting.net the third episode, the fourth film discussion in that Ray Marathon. We talked about his 1958 film, The Music Room. The final three films in the marathon, and that's counting The Music Room, are all available to stream via Hulu Plus, as well as being available on DVD via Netflix, or you can try your public library. Basically, what we're saying is there's no excuse not to be following along with this marathon.
3: And fair to say The Music Room is a bit of a departure yes. for him from the opening. In films. interesting ways. So.
2: Yep. More information about the Ray Marathon or previous Film Spotting Marathons is available. Just click on the Marathons link at filmspotting.net. Also wanted to sneak in another cool Quick edition of Golden Brick Spotting, though I wouldn't put this up. That's not really a catchy name, is it? Golden Brick Spotting? Well, I think at this point you've been so busy. We I've need a busy. name. yeah. The Duke of Burgundy, recommended, out on VOD. What was the other film I just talked about? It was Matt, Shepherd uh, Matt is Shepard is a Friend of Mine. Friend of mine yep. Also, I believe out on VOD and playing in select cities. I'm not going to put this film quite in the category with those two, and I think if you see it, you'll agree with me. It's probably not going to ultimately be a contender, but I still think it's worth seeing. It's my life-directed, by Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of Drive, and that doesn't mean it's a film directed by him. It's a documentary about him. The My Life being referenced there is that of the filmmaker here, in this case, Winding Refn's wife, Liv Korfixen. So she's making a movie about sort of being married to him and the creative process specifically that he employed on the movie, Josh, I know you were a huge fan of. 2013's only God forgives. Oh man, with Ryan Gosling. That's the one she had to pick. I know, and I think although that, maybe that would be the
3: that's most it. interesting one. That's it
2: is that it was widely seen as an artistic failure. I guess that's fair to say. I don't think it got great reviews, and it wasn't a commercial success. And that's one of the things he's wrestling with. That is interesting to that's see what in was the film. Yes, yeah. they do touch on the reception no, of the not film? the reception because that is out of the movie's purview. It covers can a little bit, where the movie debuts and gets into a little bit of the response, but it's really about the making of the film Only God Forgives. What I'm referencing is how he really is struggling with this idea of how do I top Drive? Everybody just wants me to make Drive 2, and there are already elements of this film that are similar to Drive and some of the other movies I've done, and I know this movie isn't going to be as commercially successful, so then does that mean it's a total failure? And then what if I think it's a total failure? So, you know, I don't think it's going to give you a huge insight into his process, but I'm always fascinated by on-set stories, and I'm... Interested in this director? We've both been fans of Drive and Bronson. I still haven't seen Only God Forgives, and I thought maybe that would affect my viewing of this. It didn't really in any way. I don't think I needed to see that movie. It also helps. It really is only 58 minutes long, so it's hard does to that count as a feature. I don't know. It's hard not to make time is that eligible no for... for
3: a Golden Brick at 58. <laughs> we've minutes? never
2: we've never eliminated a film because it was too short. All right. So I don't think we're going to start now. It does further give us proof, though, Josh, that whether in a documentary or whether in a narrative Ryan Gosling the coolest person on the planet at any given point in history he's even cool just being himself he is he's like
3: James Bond he never goes to the
2: bathroom (laughs) no he doesn't he's always the coolest guy in any room that he's in so I kind of hate him for that that's My Life Directed by Nicholas Winding Refn it opens this weekend on VOD so again you got 58 minutes and you didn't loathe Only God Forgives (laughs) the way Josh did you can see that movie Bonus content. I don't know. After the marathon review we had to do, it's going to be a late night here at the film spotting studio. I don't know if we're going to be able to get to the bonus content. We may put it off, Josh. But the plan was to get into some of the responses to our 2015 preview, our most anticipated films of the year. Okay. And also the recent top five rescue scenes. All right. We did that tying in with Jupiter Ascending. Got some good stuff there. We might just get to it. We'll you see how should. long you talk on your top
3: five documentary moments. Thank you.
2: Thank you. <laughs> That'll determine it. <laughs> that is a fact. And if you want to seek out that bonus content or previous bonus content, go to filmspotting.net and click on apps. If you have the film spotting app, that's the easiest way to get it, of course, for iOS, Windows 8, or for Android. All right. Poll results. We get into some Oscar stuff here, Josh. We were anticipating last weekend's Oscars, so couple shows ago we asked you about the kind of oscar night outcomes you were rooting for as always the options we gave you were probably the incorrect ones at least given the great poll feedback we got so we will give you the results first and then get into that feedback again the question simply which oscar outcome would you most like to see your options were michael keaton winning for best actor wes anderson winning for best director jk simmons for best supporting actor patricia arquette for best supporting actress or you had the option of other. You could enter your own choice. Other shockingly didn't win. Sorry, no, no. Other came up didn't short. Go for other. <laughs> but two of those choices did win. Of course, J.K. Simmons and Patricia Arquette for supporting, as I believe we both predicted on our show correctly, and. Really, most of the free-thinking world did as well. No, those were not surprises. So, Josh, how did it come out?
3: Other did not do well in our poll either. 10% of the vote in last place. Patricia Arquette was next with 15% of the vote, closely followed by Michael Keaton, 16%. Up at the top here, J.K. Simmons... 24% 24% of the vote, but winning handily Wes Anderson for Best Director with 35%.
2: So I'm glad to see that the Larson family came out in full strength That's for right. They that may have vote. voted multiple times. All those Wes Anderson fans out there. <laughs> wow. Well, we got this email. Now, the ugly American in me wants to say Thomas Dargent in Lyon, France, but it's probably Thomas Dargent in oh, Lyon, you're, you're France. you're even going Thomas. I'm going Thomas. That's what I'm doing, Josh. You want we'll to read see it? what Tomas says about that? <laughs> well, there aren't other French <laughs> words to pronounce.
3: This is a no brainer. It took me half a second to choose Wes Anderson for best director. As far as I'm concerned, he is a much better director than the other options are actors. It is baffling that the Oscars have not recognized him so far. And the Grand Budapest Hotel, one of his best, would be a terrific opportunity to do so. I have no problem with the other picks, but however good one might think they are, I can't compare them to Anderson, especially when I feel some of them, like, for instance, J.K. Simmons, had only a -a once-in-a-lifetime
2: breakthrough, whereas Anderson has a whole career that deserves recognition. I think Simmons was also getting a little bit of, not a lifetime achievement award, certainly, but he was getting recognition for being a really good, solid supporting actor in a lot of films over the past 10 years or so, I think. Do they do that for... No character actors. No, it's I don't generally... think that's why he won. Okay. But but I do think when you saw people, and this is literally the only part of the Oscars I saw. I'm sorry, I'm just not the authority <sighs> here. I watched J.K. So Simmons. Disappointing. I watched him accept his award, and that's all I saw of the entire Oscar. So you're going to have to be the only Oscar expert here, recapping that show, Josh. When he stood up, and you saw about half the audience give him a standing ovation, I felt like they just weren't standing for his great performance in Whiplash, but that maybe, a for, thing. maybe for yeah, maybe the sense. great work he's consistently done. It didn't work for Keaton. No, it didn't. Unfortunately. The good news there is that while Anderson didn't win for director, Grand Budapest did win four Oscars. The score, production and costume design, makeup and hairstyling, which basically is an Oscar for Tilda Swinton. She should just add that to her <laughs> mantle. Yes, I think so.
3: Yeah, I was feeling really good for a while there. I I knew, I knew these were not the important awards it needed, but when it, racked up a bunch of those, I thought maybe, just maybe, it's going to get best picture. And, and then no. Birdman got best cinematography and I was like, no, it's not going to happen.
2: Jonathan in Minot, North Dakota says, I voted Arquette, but I seriously contemplated voting other for Nightcrawler getting best original screenplay. I just like my favorite movie of last year to win hmm. something. Yeah, Makes sense.
3: It didn't happen though. Original screenplay Oscar went to Birdman. Steve Miller from Stanford, California. If I interpret this question as the absence of which event would outrage you the most, my answer has to be J.K. Simmons for best support an actor. I loved all the nominees except Duval, but Simmons was in a league of his own. He deserves to win and will win. But I choose to interpret this instead as which possibly unlikely event would make you the most happy? The biopics ranged from decent to great, but even the best of them, Selma, lacked the inventiveness I think an award like this deserves. I absolutely loved Birdman, but it is so clearly the sort of self-congratulatory thing Hollywood drools over, it feels like rooting for the Yankees. And boyhood, while deeply affecting, still hasn't convinced me of its timelessness. I want the feat of filmmaking to be acknowledged, but I'm unsure if I want the film itself to represent 2014. A win for Whiplash, though, now that would be something. In terms of emotional density, weight-slash-impact divided by scale-slash-volume... <laughs> I love that. Is that the Miller scale? Can (laughs) we apply that? I don't think I've seen anything quite like it. Or if I have, it certainly didn't have best picture written on the cover. Simmons deserves everything he's getting and Teller deserves everything he disappointingly isn't. But it's the film as a whole that left me dazed. Its unique visual language, masterful tension-building, and thrilling climax deserve to be seen. After the diehard American sniper fans stopped tweeting about mainstream media honoring the film nobody saw, hopefully a subset of them would seek it out and realize that this isn't some obscure arthouse piece. It's as populous and
2: accessible as they come. Adding to that, Sam Vargan in Martinez, California, wrote, I know it's less significant than the categories given, but I would really love to see Tom Cross win Best Editing. For Whiplash, So Simmons got his Oscar and Tom Cross did indeed get his Oscar as well for best editing. So Sam must have been happy. And I do think Whiplash was very deserving for that award. Will writes, this is a surprisingly difficult poll, but only because I'm fretting over what other option I should choose. Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson. Isao Takahata, Michael Keaton, Laura Dern, Richard Linklater, Roger Deakins, and Grand Budapest Hotel cinematographer Robert Yeoman haven't received Oscars, but all are more than due for one. As much as I love Simmons and Arquette, there's absolutely no doubt they'll win. If I have to go with one, the fanboy and me would say Isao Takahata winning Best Animated Feature for *The Tale of the Princess Kaguya*, after last year's travesty in choosing *Frozen* over Miyazaki's final masterpiece *The Wind Rises*. The only remedy is to acknowledge the other master filmmaker at Studio Ghibli in its closing years. Knew, Sorry, Will. Yeah, I
3: knew that wasn't going to happen, but I was surprised that they even went with *Big Hero 6* over *How to Train Your Dragon 2*. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew they'd go industry. They just—they just don't. They'll give a nomination to foreign language animated films but that's as far as they're going to go. But to go with Big Hero 6, did you follow at all, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter was doing these anonymous interviews with Oscar voters in no, advance? I heard, but I didn't see him. Wow. The one comment about the animation category, uh, basically the voter said something about he only watched the ones his kids wanted to see and then went on to a tirade about why do we have all these Chinese films <laughs> in the category anyway? Wow. <laughs> and then, and then the, the author of the piece was like, we can only assume he means... The Japanese film. Yeah. The Tale of the Princess Kaguya and apparently the Irish film, Song of the I mean, it's just when you read these interviews, it's outrageous that we pay any attention to the Oscars at all. I didn't know Charlton Heston was still voting. (laughs) (laughs) Or alive. Exactly. Willie Evans in Manhattan, Kansas. I went with other because I always see the best foreign language and best documentary categories as the most important. A lot of people will go see a movie simply because it is nominated for Best Picture or one of the other major categories, but very few people will see a foreign language film or documentary unless it has actually won the Oscar. I've only had the chance to see Leviathan and *Ida* in the foreign language category this year, but I would be very happy if either won. For these reasons, I voted for Citizen Four to win the Best Documentary Award. It was a thrilling and thought-provoking movie that, regardless of personal politics, has a lot to say about how we live today. Plus, I just really hope that the Academy gets this category right after getting it so incredibly wrong Mm. last year.
2: Yeah, 20 Feet from Stardom is a good documentary. I was glad I saw it. I think it even came up at our end-of-year wrap party, but maybe not... The caliber of documentary that you would like to see win that Oscar for best doc. Citizen Four, I think, is more fitting, seems a little bit more heavy, I guess, which I don't know if that's always a good thing. And that does mean a double win for Willie Evans, Ida. I know you were happy. That was I was to too. See. Won the foreign language Oscar and Citizen Four took that Doc trophy. Kate Fueyo in Tampa, Florida, said quite frankly, after Gillian Flynn failed to even get a nomination and a most violent year was left out in the cold completely. I don't have a lot of faith in this year's ceremonies, but I'm still throwing all of my idealistic hope that Rosamund Pike or even Reese Witherspoon can pull a last minute. Best Actress Upset. Yeah. Don't bet against Julianne Moore, who did finally win. Trevor Brown in Newark, Ohio.
3: I am going with the other category and casting my vote for Everything is Awesome to win Best Song. I'm still shocked and dismayed that they didn't nominate the Lego movie for an Oscar, so the least that could happen is for the movie to win Best Song. And as a side note, I recently watched Frank, and am now also disappointed that I Love You All wasn't nominated for Best Song. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. The way the movie ends culminating with that song brought a tear to my eye.
2: Now, Michael Fassbender, even wearing a papier-mâché head, that would have gotten me to watch the Oscars. Who has more charisma in a room? Michael Vassbender in a papier-mâché head or Ryan Gosling in a hoodie? My head's going to explode. I can't... (laughs) Think about that and get back to me. I can't answer that question. It's too hard. (laughs) Maybe even Trevor, though, changed his tune. I'm hearing that the John Legend common performance of best song winner Glory from Selma was a highlight of the night. Josh, is that true? Yes. I found the standing
3: ovation... And all the tears, maybe a little pandering afterwards. You don't have a heart, though. But the performance itself and the production number, it was one that and the Lego movie song at least gave us big production numbers. uh, And both of them
2: were done very well. Okay, Do you have any final feedback? that you want to share it all. The only thing I've picked up, because like I said, truly, I only saw a few minutes of it and am not going to revisit it on DVR. I tried to stay off Twitter. Something about following the live tweeting makes me even crazier than watching the ceremony. I've picked up a little bit of the buzz today being on social media. I know a little bit of some of the controversies. I do love the irony, though, Josh, of the common complaint I'm hearing is that it was bland and there was nothing really provocative and it played it too safe. And I just think it's funny that Twitter is complaining about that when Twitter is the same outrage machine that if the Oscars had done anything remotely challenging, those same people would sure. have been freaking out sure. about something offensive they did. So I'm going to get off my old man's soapbox now <laughs> complaining about social media.
3: You chose a good ceremony to sit out. I, I can't recall one that was duller than that. And mm. I, I don't need it to be risque or provocative either. I, I just wanted it. To be entertaining, and it it was really bad. I mean, I'm not as big of a fan of Neil Patrick Harris as um, a lot of people, just because I'm not familiar with everything he's done. I haven't seen the Dr. Horrible stuff. I didn't watch How I Met Your Mother. Haven't seen him host before. So all I've heard you is that- You have every
2: season of Doogie Howser, though, on VHS. <laughs> that, that's
3: that's really all I know
2: of him, okay. is Doogie Howser.
3: No, I never saw that either. But all I've heard is he's this multi-talent, he amazing is. force of entertainment mm-hmm. nature, and where's that guy? I mean, you know, he it wasn't entirely his fault. The material, the jokes were just brutal. He should have say over those, I guess. But he did a couple of gags that just fell flat. And speaking of production numbers, his opening thing, he didn't even dance. I thought this guy like, da- like where's yeah. the dancing? So it just it was it was kind of blah to me, and um, he kind of felt like like Billy Crystal. He's, mm. much, he's far more handsome. I'll give him that. You don't think Billy Crystal does a good job hosting the Oscars? No, but that's what it felt like, okay. is what I'm saying. Is it was kind of A little like, redundant, you know, been there, done that. Yeah, that's, that was the style, and
2: I was just expecting this, this force of nature. Okay. That brings us to this week's poll question. Next week, March 6th, to be exact, marks the precise 10th anniversary of film-spotting Cinecast. It was formerly called Cinecast, and we're planning right now a pretty low-key <laughs> anniversary show. We had our big blowout bash this past summer. 500 episodes. You can pretend we're trying to be humble about this, but really, we just have no
3: time to do anything
2: else. It's pure laziness. But we did have that bash at the Music Box. That's true. The live show. We celebrated that whole film spotting era, the top five films from 2005 to 2014. Michael Phillips was there. Dana Stevens from Slate was there. Had that interview with Ryan Johnson, Mr. Star Wars. It was a lot of fun. If you missed it, you can find that show in the archives over at filmspotting.net. I guess next week it will be me and josh here in the studio giving each other a high five <laughs> that'll be great that'll great be radio the celebration we also figured though the best way to make the show special would be of course to include you without you guys the show doesn't happen so here's all you have to do really is answer this week's poll question and leave us some feedback the question is and sam here has really come up with something i think pretty clever is tell us when you started listening to film spotting so here's where the clever part comes in the best way to measure your tenure as a film spotting listener, we think, is to consider it within the filmography of Christopher Nolan. Ah. Not necessarily because he's the best director of the film spotting era, but his filmography does seem to align just about perfectly with the evolution of this show. Okay. Starting with Batman Begins in 2005, it was episode 18, and that was the first episode of film spotting that was featured in iTunes. So for many people was the first episode of the show they heard. And of course, We recently had a little bit of a fight over Interstellar, episode 515. That's right. So he's made a new film. Nolan has about every 100 episodes of the show, gone through a few different co-hosts over that time. It's nice of him to pace them out like that for (laughs) us. It really is. So, Josh, you've done your two Nolan films. I think to break the curse, you've got to stick around long enough for the next (laughs) Nolan film. All right. Or he has to stop making movies. I don't really see another option. The poll question then. I started listening to film spotting before... Batman Begins, which was
3: 2005, episode 18. The Prestige, 2006. That would have been episode 132. The Dark Knight, 2008, number 219. Maddie Ballgame was on board at that point. Inception, 2011, number 308. And then The Dark Knight Rises, 2012, number 406. I did that one with you, Adam. And Interstellar, as we said, was
2: from last year. It really does match up perfectly with the history so far of this show. Two hosts for each movie. Tell us when you started listening. Please use the feedback as well, how you found the show. If you want to share that, when you found it, what's happened in your movie life since you started listening, we would love to hear it. And we'd love to have so much feedback that we can use it to fuel about 57 future installments of bonus content. Wonderful. That is your directive. <laughs> Vote now at filmspotting.net. And yes, if you do leave us one of those comments, we encourage you to do that and to leave. Your location. We always love to know where our listeners are listening from.
0: No, you've seen Don't enough of that up. one. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11 and most of 11 the, 11 amps, the amps go up to ten. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not ten. You see, most, most blokes, you gonna know, be playing at ten, you're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar, where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to eleven. Eleven, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to eleven.
2: Because we haven't mentioned Spinal Tap enough yet on this episode, we use that famous clip to transition into this week's top five, inspired by what we do in the shadows. The new vampire mockumentary out of New Zealand, our top five mockumentary moments. And that scene, a great one to play, I think, because Spinal Tap is so iconic and just might come up on one of our lists here. But also because Christopher Guest, there is Nigel Tufnell, he's pretty much synonymous with the mockumentary form at this point over films like waiting for guffman and best in show and a mighty wind so i excluded christopher guest from my list completely including spinal tap for me it's the this one goes to 11 memorial list but i thought about it josh and i felt like i was doing our listeners a service by keeping those out so i would have a more eclectic list and choices that haven't been talked about a lot on this show and elsewhere over the years. But then I did realize I was basically just doing myself a service by not having to narrow down my five favorite Christopher Guest moments. Because there's too many it funny ones tough for me. from those three. So that was my cop out from that. I know you didn't quite cop out and we'll get to your picks here. Did you have any other criteria or any other formulas you employed i did set something aside for me it's going to be the borat
3: memorial list okay. just because you're a that big fan film, i'm a huge fan and it's come up on two lists already i think i had it culture clash comedies recently mm-hmm. too so that was with our uh, dear white people review and also i believe one of the very first shows i did gonzo characters and mentioned it here and there so um so yeah setting borat aside even though i could probably pick maybe five moments from okay. it for a list like
2: this. i also excluded because I saw a lot of this on Twitter when we were talking about the topic, mockumentary moments within non-mockumentaries. You know, some movies have these kind of faux-documentary sequences. I didn't want to focus on that, and I didn't go with any found footage stuff, but mainly because... I haven't really seen any found footage movies except the Blair Witch Project. So <laughs> that it scared you been, away from them forever? I don't know. No, I like that movie quite a <laughs> bit. So I don't know. I'm just not really that familiar with the genre. It didn't seem like it fit.
3: Yeah, I set that aside too. Okay, your number five. My number five is the warming up the audience scene in real life. This is Albert Brooks' nineteen seventy. It's the opening of the film. It's the opening, yeah, it is. Before the credits, even, I think. Uh, his mockumentary, he plays Hollywood star Albert Brooks, and he's embarking on this directorial project to document a year in the life of an average Phoenix family. He wants to capture an authentic new form of drama that and is pioneering. Why, why Phoenix? In because you choose between Phoenix in the Winter or Wisconsin. Smart man. Well, before reality television took over our screens, this really anticipated everything that is awful and fake about those. It's astonishing to see this movie now and look at what came in its wake. It does become very clear early on that the fictional Brooks project here is doomed, largely because he can't resist injecting himself into this project. So that's why I picked this moment, this opening speech that he gives to the community uh, in which the film will be made. He's, he's at once encouraging them to act as normal as possible, while he's also trying to wow them with his own you know star power and charisma. So this completely mixed message that he's
1: sending.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. So please, just remember two simple words and everything will be perfect be yourselves
3: if you see one of our cameramen following warren or Jeanette or one of the children into your homes or your offices or cleaning establishments or gas stations don't try to do anything special i mean it's tempting to show off for the camera i know i make my living that way but in this case we don't want a show well let me correct myself we want the greatest show of all life the best part of this is actually how Brooks ends the presentation, though, because he's been giving them just this standard speech. Then, all of a sudden, he launches into this pandering big band number that he wrote himself about how wonderful this town is. See, the curtains, they're in like a gym, I think, Mm -hmm. and the curtains to the stage are pulled back, and we have this 12-piece orchestra that's just doing this huge production number, big Hollywood number, all about how nice and normal they should be a little something I jotted down on the plane coming in yesterday, especially from me to you. When an irresistible town such as you meets a young, honest guy like myself, no one can doubt it's gonna be great. It's fate! Something's gotta give, give me all you got, don't make me wait. All right, folks, like you are what they call number one. So real life in, in retrospect it's just probably
2: one of the most prescient movies yeah. about the entertainment business that I've seen. That's a great pick. My number five is the 2004 film Incident at Loch Ness. and The one I wasn't allowed to pick, I saw on Twitter.
3: Oh, really? Yeah, you had made that comment. Someone mentioned it early Because on. I knew it was like, going to make my list. That's <laughs> yes. right.
2: I said that you were forbidden to include that. But the scene I'm thinking of, I'll get to. Some explanation here is the who suffered more bit. And if you're going to talk about mockumentaries in terms of blurring the lines of reality and fiction, that's inherently what they're doing. Then I think you have to include on any list Mr. Ecstatic Truth himself, Werner Herzog. And that must have been what director Zach Penn was thinking when he conceived this film, because it's a film within a film within a film. There's a crew out to make a documentary about the Loch Ness Monster that Werner Herzog is heading up but there's a separate crew making a documentary about Werner Herzog and these types of expeditions and projects and movies that he makes. Along the way, Zach Penn, the character, as producer on one of these films, infuses some drama to spice up the narrative a little bit. A fake Nessie (laughs) is thrown into the mix at one point, but then maybe the real Nessie actually shows up so again there's more layers of artifice and truth at work even in that roger ebert described incident loch ness as somewhere between this is spinal tap and burden of dreams the less blank documentary a real documentary about the filming of herzog's Fitzcarraldo. and one of the funnier nods to that in the movie is zach penn at one point says to herzog at least we're not dragging the boat over a hill (laughs) and herzog says what was that and he says "Uh, nothing (laughs) someone on twitter noted the great line they suggested the bit from this film where Herzog says, I couldn't believe Zack stole the lifeboat. I had only one thought on my mind. If I survived this, I was going to find Zack Penn and I would hunt him down and I would strangle him with my two hands. <laughs> that was my really bad... I was going to say, were you doing bad, bad, Herzog slow, there? Bavarian accent. But I didn't go with that. Instead, I went with a Zack Penn moment. I think it's at the end of the film. I didn't have a chance to get the DVD out and I couldn't find it online. I believe it's the end of the movie, though, where... He's on vacation. He's now survived this whole incident. People have died, though, through the making of this movie. And he says this When I look back and I hear people talk about what's suffering, I say to myself, Who suffered more than I did? I mean, other than the people who died. I mean, obviously, they suffered more because, well, they're dead. But you can make the argument that they're dead, so they're not really dealing with it. Whereas I live with this guilt and I live with the sadness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cracks I like me up just logic. reading it, because here he is, just the earnest self-righteousness and egomania of the pen character. It's just so funny, and it is the thing, ultimately, that drives this whole expedition. You've got, in this moment, as you get in so many mockumentaries and documentaries, a character bearing his soul, but just revealing himself to be a total asshole. He's basically saying, hey, people died, but my movie got made, and... That's my favorite bit from Incident Loch Ness. Yeah, it's the real life shtick, too. You know, how bad Brooks makes himself look Mm -hmm. in that movie. It's just hysterical.
3: My number four is from a film that's maybe thought of as a straightforward music documentary first, or maybe even a concert film, but it is at heart a mockumentary. It's A Hard Day's Night. The brilliance of this movie, 1964, directed by Richard Lester, is that it is a document and also a commentary on this unprecedented fame that was surrounding the Beatles and also the rock documentary format. That was popular at the time. The movie views all of this with a bemused, sardonic eye that's still somehow true to the band's playfulness. I'll give you a little more Roger Ebert here. In his great movies review, he described it this way. It was clear from the outset that A Hard Day's Night was in a different category from the rock musicals that had starred Elvis and his imitators. It was smart, it was irreverent, it didn't take itself seriously, and it was shot and edited by Richard Lester in an electrifying, black and white, semi-documentary style that seemed to follow the boys during a day in their lives. My moment is not one of the musical ones, I mean, those are obviously the highlights of the film, but instead I'm going with something that's more mockumentary-like. It's the montage of faux press conference interviews that feature responses from all four of the Beatles.
0: Tell me, uh, how did you find America? left to greenland has success changed your life yes i'd like to keep britain tidy are you a mod or a rocker Um, no i'm a mocker
3: this cleverly plays with their public personalities and the point here is to seemingly give us something even more authentic to let us peek behind the beatles Curtain, or so we think we're getting to peak. So when we get the close ups of the Beatles who are surrounded by these interviewers, they each make eye contact with each other and sort of nod towards the door to leave. That puts us on their side. We're in with them, right? So we're separated from those interviewers. It really does make us feel as if we're getting the real backstage view when in fact we're just getting this brilliantly calibrated one.
2: It's been too long since I've seen A Hard Day's Night. I didn't even think about it for this list, but you're right, it qualifies. Over the years here on the show, I think I'm the only person banging the drum for this actor as a director, and that's Tim Robbins, who made Dead Man Walking and got a lot of acclaim for it. But I also love Cradle War Rock. And his debut film, the satire, the mock documentary Bob Roberts from 1991, I think is when it came out, is my number four choice, specifically the fanatic fans sequence when he meets a very wealthy donor. This is another movie that has some spinal tap references built into it certainly a little bit of don't look back the da pennebaker dylan documentary at play here of course bob roberts is this folk singer who goes around the country as he's campaigning for a senate seat in the 1990 pennsylvania race he sings the times they are a changing back and does his own riffs on dylan in the sequence there are many that i love from this movie but i kept coming back to you, josh the Film debut of Jack Black is actually in is this scene. Really? Yeah, he's one of the fanatic fans. He's one of three. It's a good part of the Oscars, by the way. Oh, okay, I didn't really did enjoy he was there little cameo. He's one of three brother is one of three sons. I think he's the oldest. And there's this wealthy donor, this woman who is meeting Bob Roberts and praising him for all he's going to do and how she's in line with his way of thinking conservatively. And if you watch it, it's hard for radio. This isn't a good one for radio because it's really more in his face and everything he's doing to reflect his nervousness and his stunned awe and this just sense of pure reverence and he's pretty twitchy it's that Jack Black kind of performance where there's some subtlety to it and yet it's also big it can't help but be a little bit big and he is just so badly trying to impress someone who is everything he isn't Bob Roberts is confident and he's in control and he's talented and articulate and he just commands respect from people like this woman like his mom and yet here he is just Really, completely antithetical to that, and is smitten with Bob Roberts, fanatically smitten with Bob Roberts. At the end of the film, when Bob is in a hospital room, we meet Jack Black again with Bob sort of tattooed on his forehead very <laughs> eerily, and he's looking like Private Pile from Full Metal Jacket holding vigil outside that room. But that sequence. It's there in the dialogue as well in some of the ways he beholds Bob Roberts, but it really is just Jack Black's face that makes up my number four mockumentary moment. Think about the
3: variety in tone and style and theme from Bob Roberts to Dead Man Walking. Mm -hmm. Though I'm with you on Robbins with Dead Man Walking for sure. Despite Adam's restrictions, we will, I guarantee, get to a Christopher Guest mockumentary moment when we come back with our final three picks. Stay with us.
2: As I travel down the back roads of this home I love so much
1: Every carpenter and cowboy,
2: every layman man on a garage They're
1: all talking about a feeling, about a taste that's in the air
0: They're all talking about this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere Oh, a mighty wind's a-flowing, it's kinking up the sand It's blowing out a message to every woman, child, and man
2: Yes, some mighty winds are blowing Cross the land and cross the sea. It's glowing peace and freedom it's blowing
0: equality. From a lighthouse in Bar Harbor to a bridge called Golden Gates. From a trawler down in Shreveport to the shore of one great lake. There's a star on the horizon and it's burning like a flame. Fighting up this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere Oh, the mighty winds of blowing It's kicking up the sand It's blowing out a message to every woman and trial and man
2: Well even if I'm trying to exclude Christopher Guest from this show, clearly Sam Van Halgren is not as nice you work, heard him. Yes, yeah, tap. Music from that great band and also a track there from A Mighty Wind. Josh, we do have a few donors we want to thank this week, including Nick from Westmont, Illinois. Nick sent us an email, a little bit disappointed in our Sacred Cow discussion of Unforgiven. The only one I've seen so far that was disappointed and mainly, you know, we can blame Michael. He just thought his take on the ending was so troubling that it kind of made Nick a little bit frustrated. I understand, Nick. You know, Michael I got a little frustrated, too. Michael does that to us from time to time. And he sent us an email. I wrote him back, and he said some very kind words about my response. And it somehow prompted him to
3: donate. Mr. Kempinar's response was quick, courteous, and illuminating. And while I still believe the discussion was less than stellar, it really attests to the high quality that I come to expect and almost always get from film spotting.
2: With that in mind, I felt it was finally time to pay the dealer. There you go. You know, you're not going to love all of them what can you do exactly 527 episodes now some of them are going to be perfect but overall i was pretty happy with that unforgiven discussion and look nick wasn't alone in thinking michael's reading of the ending was well let's just say it wrong that's fine we thought he was wrong too but it did prompt i think a really interesting discussion about the ending that i don't know that we would have had if michael wasn't Absolutely. there so I'm grateful that you don't you don't want all three of us saying the exact same thing. That would be pretty dull. We also got a gold level donation from Robert in Toronto, Ontario. He basically gave us two bucks a show. Thank you so much for that, Robert. And new $10 a month donors, Brian in New York City and Amy in Corvallis, Oregon. I would like to make my $10 monthly
3: subscription in honor of my husband, Matt Usner. Matt is a long-time listener of Film Spotting. He took a class that Adam taught at the Graham School and has introduced the podcast to me. Your podcasts have introduced us both to movies we may not have heard of or wanted to watch. But even more important, your podcasts and the films that you discuss have opened up conversations between us that probably would have never taken place. We have a one-year-old daughter, and I hope in the future she can enjoy Film Spotting as much as we do and join in our family
2: discussions. You got to go ahead and get her into the film spotting family start now just start now three maybe (laughs) three is about the right age let's not get ridiculous thank you amy and matt and to all of our donors of course we single out the new donors but we have a steady base of monthly donors who are really the lifeblood of the show thank you so much and if you can't donate right now of course checking out our sponsors like movie.com going to movie.com slash film spotting even if you don't ultimately decide to buy but just browse that helps us rating us on itunes is always a great way to help the show get visibility and new listeners as well so we thank everybody for all they do to support film spotting Welcome back to Film Spotting. This week, we're sharing our top five mockumentary moments. Josh, let's quickly recap for our radio listeners. Our number five and four picks you had. At number five, I had the
3: warming up the audience opening scene in real life with Albert Brooks. My number four was A Hard Day's Night when the Beatles are doing their faux
2: interviews with the press. My number five was from Incident at Loch Ness, Zach Penn's Who Suffered More soliloquy. And my number four from Tim Robbins' directorial debut, the satire Bob Roberts, when that character meets his fanatical fan played by Jack Black. If you want to hear our takes on those picks, along with a lot more talking in general, you can find the full version of the show at filmspotting.net or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. So, Josh, that brings us to our top three mockumentary moments. What do you have? Well, I could not set Christopher Guest aside entirely. Just couldn't do it. But I did want to limit
3: myself to only one guest directed Film now. I already had Mitch and Mickey as one of my top five movie bands. That was episode five hundred three. So their final song together from A Mighty Wind, which was a very popular suggestion on Twitter and Facebook, I set that one aside. So from among the other films, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and for your consideration, I went with Fred Willard's color commentary from Best in Show. These are the oblivious observations. This is a bit of a cheat. Someone, gosh. it's a montage. <laughs> throughout the whole film no there i think there's only two major sections aren't there Hmm. when he first appears okay here i'll narrow it down for you i'm gonna go with the one i think it's early on where he tells his co-announcer i'm just messing with you after saying some of the most (laughs) oblivious and idiotic things as if he's never been to a dog show before the jokes he makes are so bad the suggestions he has this is also the scene where he suggests that the Bloodhound wears the Sherlock Holmes hat uh-huh. he just thinks that would make it more fun I mean he's basically cl- classing down what purports or is trying to be this high society affair what I also like about this scene is I'm I'm a bit of a cringe watcher of awkward sports commentary when things between the color guy and the main announcer just go yeah. start going really wrong and it has this car crash sense of you can't turn the channel because you don't know what's going to happen this was a delicious Staged example of that, these these scenes.
0: She is really giving them a thorough going over. Are all judges that thorough? I mean, she looks at the
1: teeth. It's very important that all the attributes are examined Uh, teeth, eyes, ears, gums. Am
0: I seeing right? Where is she putting her hands now?
1: Uh, She's just checking out the dog's. testicular area to make sure to make sure that uh, that everything is intact
0: hate to go
3: out on a date with
0: judge uh, edie franklin have her judge me
3: that would be no fun i do want to give credit to the straight man because he's so crucial it's it's jim piddock and he's the knowledgeable announcer who has to withstand all this his silent pauses of disbelief are just so crucial to the gag they sort of reminded me of my silent pause after you declared last week that
2: you liked Fifty Shades of Grey. I just, I had nothing. No, that's a good point. And see, I was going to thank you for recognizing the straight man, as I'm constantly the straight man to your Massacre Theater performances. (laughs) That's true. I I do appreciate your assistance. (laughs) My number three mockumentary moment comes from a Woody Allen movie. And I'm such a Woody Allen fan that I had to pick one when he's made three mockumentaries, starting with his Debut Feature, I believe, as a director was Take the Money and Run, later Zelig, and then I'm going with the 1992 film Husbands and Wives. Unlike most of my picks, Josh, this is one of those films that never reveals its conceit. You're sort of asking yourself the whole time, well, why are they filming? And who's filming? What movie is being made here? The movie doesn't really address that ever. We just get a documentary style very handheld from cinematographer Carlo De Palma and then these interviews that are interspersed throughout the film. It's kind of what's become popular with a lot of sitcoms. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of funny lines for me in this movie, but the scene I'm going with is the one with Woody and Juliette Lewis in the taxi. This is the first scene I thought of from Husbands and Wives. She plays a precocious student of his. He's a writer, a novelist, and also a professor and they have this encounter in the back of a taxi maybe this scene has stuck with me so much because josh i handle criticism so amazingly well but he's developed this friendship with this student and so he lets her read a draft of the novel he's working on he trusts her and he is as you might expect in that type of scenario with that dynamic he's expecting to get a lot of praise and what i love about this scene is it goes from i love the book to i was a little disappointed To total admonishment, (laughs) to finally comparing it to Triumph of the Will, a great movie that you despise the ideas behind. And finally, it culminates with Woody's character, Gabe, saying, look, let's stop this right now because I don't need a lecture on maturity or writing from a 20-year-old twit. Starts out so peaceful and elegant, and that's how it ends. And I do think rewatching the scene, it's interesting, it's not how I remembered it at all, that we don't see Woody at all in the scene. He's really flailing. He comes off very weak. He's just this disembodied voice who is piping up at her as she's throwing these barbs at him. The camera gives all the power to Lewis in the scene. And all the people who feel so comfortable believing they truly know something about Woody Allen, the person based on Woody Allen, the character in his movies, I'll let them dissect this scene for all the insights they think they can glean. I really just think it's hilarious and painfully truthful in the way we try to give criticism to people and the way most of us struggle to accept it. So is that how listeners
3: should send their critical emails? Start out with, I love the show. Yeah. And then, don't, and then by the end, they'll work their way. Towards... Don't lead with triumph of the will. <laughs> okay. All right. Good advice. All right. For number two, I don't know if this is, if this is a swear wolves moment where might need earmuffs, but it's not exactly a swear, but the scene is defending against three dildos from Bruno. <laughs> so categorize that how you want. Wow. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's follow-up to Borat, it sought to expose another of their rational fears that feeds the underbelly of America, not of the foreigner, which Borat did, but here of homosexuality. Cohen goes undercover as Bruno, this unambiguously gay Austrian fashion celebrity, and he forces himself into real-life situations in order to bring out that intolerance, to bring out the idiocy. Think of him as a politicized Andy Kaufman. It's pretty outrageous stuff in this movie, as you can expect, including this insanely awkward conversation with Family Research Institute's Paul Cameron, who tries to convert Bruno and just ends up revealing his own bizarre discomfort with women. But perhaps the most ridiculous moment, and this is my pick, is when Bruno goes to a karate instructor looking for advice on how to defend himself from potential gay attackers. How should I protect myself from being attacked by homosexuals? They probably would attack from behind. So again, if
0: I'm a homosexual and I'm just trying to run in and kiss you. Boom!
3: You done moved in the wrong range. Right. Let's say the homosexual has got you on the
1: ground. Okay. On the homosexual, you know, has got you down here. I uh, go to pull this I down. I want to
3: lock this. And lock this leg here. Yeah. Hit with the elbow, boom, as I roll across.
0: How do you protect yourself from a
3: dildo? So That's let's right. say I'm trying, here, you know. You really, this is another one where it's better to watch than listen to on the radio because you have to see this instructor. I mean, he has very impressive mullet, a more impressive beer belly. You wouldn't expect that from a karate instructor. (laughs) He might be a little fit, you'd think. You know. And he actually, he starts losing his breath quickly during the demonstration. It's a great little touch. But by far, again, a facial thing like you were talking about with Jack Black. It's this guy's face it remains implacable no matter how ridiculous the questions that bruno throws at him no matter how many sex toys continue to come out for this demonstration uh, this guy he just goes on with the simulated attack and what it reveals to us is that this is a reasonable concern in this man's mind he, he's he's processed this and thought this is something this man may have to worry about, and he needs advice. (laughs) So, Bruno, it's not as brilliant as Borat. And I can understand, you know, this movie did get complaints about the first third, which established Bruno's hedonistic gay lifestyle. I can understand the complaints that the movie verges on homophobia itself here and there, um, but it does have plenty of moments worthy of this list. Well, we weren't as enamored with
2: Borat here on the show before your time, Josh, so I didn't even see Didn't bother with Bruno. A shame. I'm sorry, but you have me intrigued with that, <laughs> that scene. That scene alone. Yeah, you that can't scene wait. alone, I'm going to check out. My number two is a scene from the 1971 movie Punishment Park. This is a harrowing, angry, alternate history. It takes place in 1970. Obviously, we all know what was going on in the country at the time Nixon in office, the Vietnam War. You've got people like Abby Hoffman and guys who were later part of the Chicago Seven who are out there rallying students and having these protests against those efforts. And so what this movie supposes is that Nixon decrees a state of emergency. He says, because of all of these protests, all of these people are basically risks to domestic security. And he can do whatever he wants to put them before these kind of clown courts, And have them punished. And the choice they're given that we see in Punishment Park, Josh, is they can either spend 15 to 20 years in jail for protesting for hating America, basically, or they can choose Punishment Park. Punishment Park is four days in the desert where they basically get to be fodder for National Guardsmen and other law enforcement officers who are going to use them as part of their training. So they give them a head start out in the desert. They only have to go 53 miles without food or water. And if they get to the American flag out there in the desert, they get to go free. No jail time. So there's a little bit of kind of a running man aspect to this as well. But if they catch them, they catch them. And who knows what they're going to do to them. That's basically the gauntlet that they're being run through and i mentioned the chicago seven i don't think it's an accident that you have characters here who while we see one group out there fighting in the desert trying to make it to the flag we see a fresh batch of seven who are being brought before these judges in this tent and there's one character who seems to me very clearly to be an abby hoffman stand-in there's someone who's a bobby seal stand-in who like During that famous trial here in Chicago, his mouth was covered and he was basically restrained so he couldn't speak at his trial. That happens to an African-American character in this movie and all the arguments that play out between each of these characters who we meet are microcosms of the arguments that were tearing apart the country at this time. The scene that I'm going with, though, Josh, is near the end of the film, and it's the we've seen this sequence. And I'm picking it because that's a line that the camera crew that's filming this for television says. The guy behind the camera finally at one point gets so outraged, he says, we've seen this. And I think that notion of seeing this, that seeing this documented for the camera, has weight, even if it's not real, us being witness to this has weight. Also, the fact that the wall is broken, where the absurdity of the situation finally overwhelms the news crew to the point where they can't pretend to be impartial anymore. They're no longer just documenting this. They're angry. They just saw cops mow down some innocent people because they were throwing rocks at them. And they felt like they were entitled to do that and to use that force but the real moment josh is what it all ends with which is this interrogation of a soldier this baby-faced young guardsman who says it was just an accident and he denies that he did anything wrong you mean you didn't mean to kill them no i didn't want to kill anyone you didn't want to kill no a man, but you shot no no. no but there are two people no i didn't him. want to kill anyone no, it was an be accident
0: okay. you shouldn't be no hey gun, hey it was alone. malone him no, alone. I, I didn't want I to kill anyone alone, it was Mr. an accident
2: let him go how old is this kid You see that denial and the anguish of what he's just done on his face. And this is a case, too, like with a lot of these mockumentaries where casting non-actors really is effective because that line is blurred even further, where it doesn't feel like someone is acting. It feels like this young person even though you know the whole thing is fake, you know the whole thing is artificial. In this moment it's so powerful that you think you're watching this young person try to justify why they just did something horribly wrong. It's a really really powerful moment in like I said a really angry film, but a justifiably angry film and one I just caught up with for this list and I'm glad I did. And which would you pick, The Jail Time or Punishment Park? <laughs> well, I have the benefit of seeing what's happening out at Punishment Park. Okay. The people who are choosing, they don't really know exactly what it is. There's no doubt I'd suffer for 15 or 20 years in jail, hoping hoping that at some point the country comes to its senses and I'd be let go. Okay. Punishment Very Park logical. itself, Punishment Park. Though in that instance, when you know nothing about what you're about to get into, right. I think most people would take their chances over four days yeah. versus yeah. 15 years, and that's what we see them do. All right. My number one, I could not set aside, This
3: Is Spinal Tap, because I wanted it, number one, and I haven't talked about it at all on the show. So I'm going with This Is Spinal Tap. Not going to go with the Ghost to 11 moment, though. Not going to go with the Stonehenge mishap. Instead, I went with Christopher Guest, Nigel Tufnell, and Michael McKean's David St. Hubitz discussing, yes, the fates of their drummers.
0: Now, during the Flower People period, who was your drummer? Stumpy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. And we were playing uh, a uh, festival, jazz blues festival. Where was that? Blues well, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. It uh, was, uh, was in the Isle oil oil of, of Lucy. Lucy. The Isle yeah. of Lucy. And it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light. And that was it. Nothing was left. of his face. Well, there was. It's that, true. truly this, this truly really There There's a little green globule on his drum seat. It's like a stain, really. It was, it was it's more it's of a spin. stain in a globule, yeah. actually. And you, know, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right.
3: The drummer deaths are, you know, it is a great runny gag throughout the film, but... I love the improvisatory nature of this conversation. It's one of those things that I talked about that I feel like a great mockumentary has to have when we reviewed what we do in the shadows is that breathing space for these comic actors to just go to town. This it meanders about until they find something comic to latch on and it could be as simple as that word, globule, and you can just see in their eyes like they, they, they like we've got something here and then they're going to play with that a little bit and just run with it. What's also remarkable. And here's the straight face thing. They stay in character as they do this. So they bring this level of competitive bickering to their argument over something as simple as whether it was a jazz blues festival or a blues jazz festival. They're just not going to let the other one win on that. I think ad-libbing absurdity is one of my favorite types of comedy. It's probably why i have a soft spot for will ferrell who does it so well
2: and this is spinal tap just a goldmine for that sort of stuff goldmine indeed we could do an entire list top 10 spinal tap moments and probably come up with 10 different ones easily okay well we're not going to get totally away from spinal tap for my number one a movie co-written by harry shearer from spinal tap You started with real life. I'm ending this list with Albert Brooks, 1979 film, real life and a scene, Josh, that doesn't occur too long after your opening scene. It's where Albert Brooks, the character, the filmmaker is setting up for us, the audience, this whole endeavor. And he's at the Institute, the psychological Institute that he's partnered with to make this, not just a cinematic movie, not just a piece of entertainment, but make it this sort of heavy, scientific study and the beginning of it is him sitting outside on the steps talking to the camera and he's telling us how he hopes he doesn't just win an Oscar but he has his sights on a Nobel you know that's that's where the ego is coming from for this project and then they go inside he's so sure of it oh he's so sure of it and the scene I love then that follows is the Etnauer where he walks through the offices of this place and talks about all the latest technology, how they're going to capture this family, the Jaegers, over the course of a year. And I'm not going to try to articulate why or how this movie so presciently foretells the rise of reality TV or get into how it's a satire of Hollywood and a satire of suburbia. It's all those things. And actually, this is another case like Unforgiven where our friends at The Dissolve haven't read it, but they did a movie of the week, gave it that full treatment. On real life. So if you haven't seen it or if you haven't, want to learn more about it, check that out. We'll link to it in the notes to this show. But the Etten Hour stands out for me, Josh, because it's about the attention to detail. It's not just normal film cameras that are going to be capturing this life without trying to intrude. They do what cinema has always done over the years they invent new technology specifically for this project. And I just love that Brooks gets into how does it shoot? How does it get sound? And he says, it's not film, it's cards. Digital, Yeah, digital. Digital. And then they'll blow it up to film after that. And of course, you see that back in 1979. You go, yeah, that's how most films are being shot today on cards and cameras somewhat similar to this, except not put over someone's (laughs) head and being worn. But I just love the detail. And then the final tag, which is just a funny line about how there were six of them made five of them worked. We had four (laughs) of them. It makes the whole endeavor sound simultaneously grandiose and revolutionary and trivial and flawed from the outset, which is exactly what it is. And in that movie, of The week Treatment, I did pull out one line from the keynote, the introduction to the movie. Nathan Rabin says, In one of Brooke's most brilliant comic conceits, the Jaeger's lives are being filmed by four Ettenhours, fictional digital cameras that are worn on cameramen's heads and resemble a cross between astronauts' helmets and robot heads. The whole idea of the Ettenhours is to be as lightweight, flexible, and unobtrusive as possible, but they look so utterly bizarre that they instantly destroy any pretense to naturalism and pull the proceedings into the realm of science fiction. Even if Brooks' character didn't do everything else wrong, trying to capture the unvarnished truth of everyday life for average Americans via crazy robot cameras operated by men who look like androids from a Kubrickian future would fatally compromise his aspirations toward chronicling objective truth. And you mentioned that with your pick, right? It is just a flawed endeavor from the beginning because of all these contradictions. And as I looked over this list, it just seemed appropriate to be at number one because all of these movies are fundamentally about using artifice to expose The fallacy of representing unaffected, unfiltered, objective truth. And yet, the goal along the way is to reveal, hopefully, some unassailable human truths. And I think all these movies, even Spinal Tap, managed to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. The great thing about the
3: Etten Hours, too, is they're... A crucial running gag. I mean, even even the most banal of setup scenes that there may be in the movie. Suddenly, you'll have one of these guys walk by Just with appear. this thing on his head, and it's you know you laugh. It's gold.
2: Yeah, it really is funny. Those are our top five mockumentary moments. Josh, did you have any? Honorable mentions?
3: Well, if I had included Bored, I probably would have narrowed down between the wrestling match in the hotel room or singing the national anthem at the rodeo. Would have had to go with one of those. My best in show moment, I considered Parker Posey's Busy Bee Freak Out. Oh. And then that Mitch and Mickey song is just so wonderful from A Mighty Wind.
2: You know, it's funny that you mentioned that best in show scene because. I came across Best in Show just flipping channels about a week ago. Okay. And that's the scene it landed on. And I love that movie. And yet I found Parker Posey so overbearing. I found that couple so overbearing yes. that I just I couldn't help but turn the channel though. It wasn't I can, funny. Like, I it was can understand too much to watch. <laughs> it's it's awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really is. So for me, I didn't pick specific scenes, but movies I considered For my top five, I didn't go The Beatles, but I did go The Ruttles. All you need is cash from the UK 1979. Interview with the Assassin, Neil Berger's debut movie. It's the movie about a guy who claims to have been the one who actually killed JFK, and he's got proof, and so this aspiring filmmaker sets about to document the uncovering of that. I like that movie. I mentioned the Woody film Zelig and Take the Money and Run. I also think X Through the Gift Shop, probably qualifies for this list i think so really fascinating movie probably could have found a scene from that to fit on and i'll throw out as well my big regret because this is one of those regrets that i really tried to fit in got 15 minutes into it ran out of time but goes back not just to this list but other lists over the years here in film spotting the belgian film from 1992 man bites dog oh yeah A lot of people brought that up on Twitter. I thought, finally, this black comedy about a camera crew following a serial killer. I thought, this is finally my excuse to watch it. Couldn't do it. Next time. Couldn't pull it off. Again, those are our top five mockumentary moments. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net.
3: You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting.
2: That's Adam, I'm Larson on film. And we're also at Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspotting. Our website, want to plug that one more time, filmspotting.net, it's where you can find 10 years of show archives and vote in the bi-weekly film spotting poll this week. In honor of our 10th anniversary coming up, we're asking you, when did you start listening to film spotting as measured, as really we all should measure our lifetimes in Christopher Nolan years. Is that what was happening on that water planet in Interstellar? Those were Nolan years. Don't go there. Don't go there, Josh. Out in wide release this weekend. Focus from the writer-directors of Crazy Stupid Love and I Love You, Philip Morris. I didn't know that. That now makes me even more intrigued to see this movie. The previews actually have me kind of interested in seeing yeah, Will Smith for sure. do something halfway interesting on camera. Once again, he plays a veteran con man with The Wolf of Wall Street's Margot Robbie co-starring. The Lazarus Effect is out. This is basically a Flatliners redux directed by, wow. The documentary director, David Gelb, who made g Dreams of Sushi, Olivia Wilde is in that. Out in limited release, opening here in Chicago at Facets, Bluebeard, great cast, very depressing subject matter, Margot Martindale, John Slattery, Adam Driver, and Steppenwolf's Amy Morton in a movie about a rural Maine bus driver who accidentally leaves a young boy on her bus, resulting in the boy going into a coma. That sounds Heavy at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Inherent Vice in 35mm. Man, excellent. I wish I could make time for that. The Babadook is out as well. And actress, director Robert Greene in person presenting his quote, Melodrama Meets Verite about actress Brandi Buray playing quote, herself would have been appropriate for this list. It would have. The Babadook on
3: my top 10 list. Inherent Vice on yours. How about that? Both at the Siskel Center.
2: If you somehow didn't catch up with them already, now is your chance, and the music box, we mentioned it, What We Do in the Shadows, the vampire mockumentary, we do recommend. On VOD, there's a few different things we could highlight. The one we're going to spotlight, though, is David Cronenberg's latest Maps to the Stars, his Hollywood-set film with newly minted Oscar winner Julianne Moore, plus Mia Vasakovska, John Cusack, and Robert Pattinson. That opens at the music box on 3-6, but it is opening On VOD this weekend, so we're planning on reviewing it next week on the show. It won't necessarily be all that in line with a 10th anniversary special other than the fact that it's a movie about the movies and we're a show about the movies and we did open the show with a movie Sort of about the movies. Be cool, Be cool. The sequel to Get Shorty. Well, and how does Cronenberg's career match up with the film spotting timeline? Have we done the research on that? No. History of Violence is one of the first films Sam and I went wow. crazy for, though. Maybe here on the it show, two thousand five. Yeah, Cronenberg might just work. And then a top five people have been asking for for a while. I believe it was the second top five in the history of the show, but we're revisiting it. We've never done it with you, Josh, as co-host. Top five blind spots. Mm -hmm. We thought now was as good a time as any. To look back over 10 years, we've always been very open and honest about movies we haven't seen and have always wanted to see and felt a little bit of shame about it. So the plan here is to come up with the top five list for each of us, the five movies that we are always the most embarrassed to tell people we haven't seen. And then maybe we'll come up with a plan to actually explore some of these films over the the next
3: year. So are we going to try to come up with one joint list that we... Tackle the ones we agree on. I think they should be unique. Yeah,
2: unique top five list. Am I going
3: to have to agree to see your blind spot films at some point?
2: I don't want to agree to yours. (laughs) This could be a problem. (laughs) We'll come up with a compromise, Josh. That's what we do here on Film Spotting. That's next week on the show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Deso and Sam Van Hogren.
3: Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
2: For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And
3: I'm Adam Kempinar.
2: Thanks for listening.
3: This conversation can serve
0: no purpose anymore. Goodbye.